All right. Here we are for episode five of the exciting podcast, Natural Awakening, where uh, I invite people to talk about meditation, uh, awakening, science, uh, and how all of that intersects in current uh, people's lives. And my guest today is uh, Roger. I don't actually know how to pronounce your last name. Tisdell? No, Roger Tisdell. 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 Um, Roger, hello, hello. please uh, introduce yourself briefly. Yeah, hello, people. I'm Roger Tisdell. I'm, oh, yeah. <laughs> what to say? What to say? What would you like to know? Um, so what, what are you up to these days? What, uh, mm-hmm. I know you're studying uh, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing a master's in philosophy for now. We'll see how that goes and if I continue with it. But yeah, at the moment I'm doing that. I, uh, I teach English online. I also teach uh, meditation and I'm in the process of renewing my American passport. I'm uh, an Anglo-American, born and raised uh, near London, but my father's from California, my mom's half American, but um, yeah, grew up in England for the most part. And now I live in Spain and I'm getting on with life, uh, connecting with people like you, and uh, enjoying things, really. Yeah. Great. And uh, maybe you could just say a little bit about uh, your childhood. Um, I know there was some uh, history of depression in your adolescence, if you're willing to share. Yeah. And how that yeah. connects to uh, what eventually brought you to uh, your meditation practice. Okay, cool. Let's let's run through it. So I think as things go, I was just genetically born with quite a low hedonic set point. So I was kind of... Mm, I mean, maybe I was a happy kid up until a point, but I think my level of well-being was below average. And then in my teenage years, I really became quite a cynical, pessimistic kid, you know, one to kind of always look on the the dark side of life. And um, But when I was 16, I remember I watched the movie Revolver by Guy Ritchie. And that movie's all about uh, the main character, Jason Statham, is battling his ego. And uh, it's quite a, it's quite a good movie, actually. But it's all about him versus his ego. And then at the end of that movie, during the credits, there's a bunch of talking heads talking about, you are not your ego. The thing you think you are, you're not. And all these different people. And uh, I was like, wow, what does that mean? You know, first time I'm hearing these ideas. And uh, I sort of started looking more into that, and I discovered Eckhart Tolle. And Eckhart Tolle taught it, talking about, Oh yes, you're you're not your ego, and and talking about um, you know, I don't know, thoughts being sort of uh, problematic. The voice in your head, that's not you, and stuff like this. And that that up that transformed me in a bit, kind of discovering that material. And then I remember at sixteen, sort of trying to test myself, like how long could I go without thinking in my head, trying to walk like a block down the street without any you know, languaging happening. And yeah, um, then I sort of kind of got into meditation a little bit because of that, but just, you know, just doing it for a few minutes, sort of focusing on my breathing to calm down, but nothing really profound. But meanwhile then, so it says depressed most of my teenage years, and then up until the age of 20, it really, really culminated 
and I was, uh, yeah, I mean, sort of fixed on suicidal ideation by that point, like really thinking about it every day. And I, I felt really, I felt really stuck in samsara is one way to put it. Or maybe I didn't have a word for it at the time, but noticing the recursive, uh, desire, dissatisfaction, uh, rinse, repeat cycle. And sort of thinking there's no way to get out of this. How do I get out of it? And uh, really feeling like such tragedy at the, the suffering of the world. So it was kind of a depression. I, I didn't think my situation was so bad, but I just thought the world situation is so bad and there's so much suffering. And I was like, oh, this is like, uh, you know, living in, in hell. Luckily, I never acted on it or anything like that. But, um, yeah, at the age of 20, then I had uh, a magic mushroom experience and that blew open the doors of perception. And I was astounded that it was a bad trip as well. It was a really, really terrifying trip. But I was astounded at how uh, different one's experience to life could be how how altered consciousness could be no one had ever told me that that was a possibility uh and you know i kept thinking about that trip thinking about that trip and then i had a, another subsequent trip and that second trip cured my depression like from day to night and what i noticed was my hedonic set point just got bumped up so now all of a sudden i was more enthusiastic about life looking forward to things i swear you know the world actually seemed more colorful. And then that's when I started getting really serious about meditation. So quickly on from then, I started doing an hour of meditation practice a day as like fueled by curiosity, just, you know, astounded what I experienced in these altered states. What is consciousness? What am I? What is this whole thing? And, you know, just a, a, a point of, of curiosity. What, <clears throat> if you can trace it back to a specific event, um, in either the first or the second, uh, experience with, with psilocybin, um, was it an experience of, uh, ego dissolution or, you know, uh, colloquially ego death that cured the depression or was it just the vividness, the engage, you know, engagement with the world of the senses that kind of brought you out? Yeah. So I didn't have ego death or ego loss during those trips. It's actually the first trip was so bad because the ego is desperately trying to hold on because it, it felt like my, my short-term memory and my long-term memory was lapsing and it felt like every two seconds I was being reborn, refreshed. And there was something in the middle trying to hold on to the coherency and, and track everything as it happening. But I was like losing my memory and really trying to hold on. And it was this, um, that was petrifyingly uh, frightening. The second trip, what for me, what struck me was that was a, a difficult trip as well. But on the come down of it, I was feeling good. I felt like, okay, I've kind of gotten out of the storm now. And I'm, I was listening to music and kind of bopping through town and feeling really good. And I realized, hang on a second. I never feel this good. Like I was just excited. I was kind of, you know, kind of skipping while listening to the music. And, and then I thought, Oh, hang on. Maybe some people feel this 
way about life all the time. Maybe the, the, the way that I'm just kind of enjoying life and listening to my music and maybe that's some people's, you know, default state. And, uh, yeah, that felt like, uh, kind of the refresher I needed. And yeah, it, it just from one day to the next cured the depression. It's quite amazing. And I know I felt very lucky about that because I know that doesn't happen to many people. For sure. Yeah. I mean, psychedelics in the current culture, there's a lot of hype around them as some kind of miracle cure and they can function in that way for some people at some times. Um, uh, but, but, but not always, uh, but very glad for you that it, that it, that it functioned in that way. That's, that's really, really wonderful. Um, so (laughs) yeah, Um, I, I can, I can say, I mean, the thing that also caught my attention about that was that my hedonic set point went up. And stayed up at a higher level. So it wasn't just about sort of, you know, temporarily feeling good and then coming back down to baseline. The baseline was moved up. And that, I think, reorientated my whole sense about the the project of trying to uh, alleviate my own suffering and, and, and help others ultimately was, ah, it's not about just having these short, like, trying to continuously kind of feel good and then come down, feel good, come down, feel good, come down. There's ways to permanently move the baseline up and so that became more uh my project that's that's what i was interested in right i think there's a this might be a positive psychology phrase maybe maybe you can remember the origin uh, i can't at the moment but uh it really is possible to be better than well mm. Mm. better than well mm. um great uh maybe you could just uh again briefly kind of walk us through uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on this, but you know, that was, uh, that second psilocybin trip was, was how many years ago for you now? Uh, six. Six. So it was shortly after that, that you began, uh, meditation in earnest. Is that mm-hmm. maybe so six years, long time, uh, <laughs> uh, but as best as you can, uh, you know, compress that, that journey, uh, to where you are now, um, into, uh, something digestible. I, I, you know, okay. make the attempt anyway. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, shortly after that second trip, I started, um, fervently meditating and, uh, yeah, going into like longish meditation practices. If you, if you count one hour being long and, uh, doing lots of different techniques and, and I was, I was exploring a lot of different states of mind for about, uh, a little short of a year. And then in that, in that time, I remember just a week after my 21st birthday, I got stream entry. And that was really clear to me because I was sitting in a philosophy classroom and I asked my professor a question. And as I was waiting for his response, there was a, a flash, which I think now would be a, a cessation. And then life was never the same after that. And it was like something changed. I mean, I didn't react. I kind of carried on in the class like normal. But then I came out of that class and sort of the world was a little bit sparkly and shimmering. And I felt different. I was like, what is this? What is this? I feel super, super, super content. And the way I describe what, what was obvious there about the difference between, okay, pre-stream entry and then after stream entry is, again, there was another bump in well-being and say like a, so a 10% increase in well-being. Um, it like 
really life just got easier after screen entry. It takes the edge off. And it felt like I had opened up this dimension of equanimity in my mind that was permanently accessible. There was always this okay place in my mind, no matter what was happening. And, 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 and then from there, there was the distancing of the self. Like I didn't feel like I was the, the personal self. I was not my emotions, not my thoughts, but at that point, I was identifying with awareness. I'm that which is aware of those things and none of those things. And then, all right. Um, before yeah, before you go further, I want to interrupt. Um, uh, and maybe uh, briefly, you could contextualize just because some people may not be familiar with the term stream entry. Um, yeah. Maybe you could just give like a, a you know capsule definition of the term. I think you, phenomena, yeah. phenomenologically, you gave a, a lovely description, but. How do you define streamship? Well, okay. So I'm referencing the Theravada fourth path model. Um, stream entry is the first of the four paths of enlightenment. All right. In the Theravada Buddhism school. Great. And if, if people want to Google that, you know, stream entry, Theravada, T-H-E-R-A-V-A-D-A. You'll, you'll find, you'll find what we're talking about. Um, all right, mm-hmm. carry on. So then, uh, you know, you, you know, that, that's the, it's interesting to describe the different stages because in some way, some of those descriptions will sound the same as the other stages, but they're understood from a different place or they're understood. What is being described is understood more deeply or, there is actually a subtle distinction that's being made. It might not be obvious when it's just voiced in plain words. But, uh, you know, stream entry is great. It sort of uh, increases your well-being, reduces your suffering a great degree. And you have this kind of sense of like, oh, am I, am I enlightened now? Or like, what? no, I feel good. But then, you know, I think quite quickly you realize, no, this isn't the full shebang. And you're still you know, emotional and reactive and, um, still, still suffering. Um, and then, okay, you know, keep practicing, keep getting to work. And I mean, what to say, you know, the second and third path are less, uh, monumental in terms of the shift, but then, then the shift to fourth path is gigantic. I mean, this it's so blown away by, uh, shift into into fourth path that's really it's what you kind of wish stream entry was all along and more and yeah i mean we could go so you know so much into it all right that's probably where we'll spend most of the rest of the podcast before we move Mm -hmm. on uh, another term that might be helpful to define for folks is um cessation um which you 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 briefly used there this Mm -hmm. this flash Mm -hmm. phenomenon um so Maybe you could just give a little context for folks. What, what does that mean? Yeah, cessation is when consciousness shuts off. So it's this briefest moment where there's no experience whatsoever. And um, there's a couple of different doorways into it. And um, I mean, the way I describe the phenomenology of cessation is you've got to be in a state of high equanimity and there's a, a defocusing effect of, of, of all the sense doors 
and then suddenly there's like a jump cut in experience and then you feel refreshed and more awakened and alive you know great and uh from from what i've i I have read um as well um from deeply concentrated states like say say the the jhanas the entry and the exit can actually be clearly perceived um and the kind of gradual cessation and then building up again of of consciousness can be seen happening in in real time um is and and that you know is very uh, insightful and uh and liberating so yeah yeah and you you can begin to predict when a cessation is going to occur if you if you're able to track through the um the stages of insight you know through you know, through the dark night stage into equanimity low equanimity high equanimity and then you know okay it's coming sort of any minute now and then boom and then yeah, you see it happen. You can kind of feel it. It's like a experience is, you know, it's, it's like it's ripe. It's, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I'm lacking the words at the moment, but something, 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 something. <laughs> something, something, something. Yeah. This is gonna, what our conversation is gonna be like now. Just well, <laughs> something, something, something. Yeah. Something, 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 something. <laughs> Um, well, perhaps, per- hopefully we can be a, a little clearer. And, uh, again, for people who haven't heard some of these terms before, the, um, the, the path of insight or the, the progress of insight, sorry, not the path, um, is a, a 16 stage, uh, description of the, uh, progression of, uh, meditation up unto, um, this point of, of cessation. Again, coming from the Theravada Buddhist tradition. Again, Google progress of insight Theravada. You'll, it'll pop right up. Um, and again, for any of these terms we're using, any of the phenomenology we describe, uh, there is vast and contentious disagreement about. So this is just mm-hmm. two guys on the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. you, read up, read up and, uh, have, have, have your own thoughts and opinions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's kind of why I'm not so beholden to these terms or titles or anything. I just want to describe the phenomenology mm-hmm. and. People don't like the name being given to it. Okay, so be it. Uh, but here's, I'm trying, I'm trying my best to just accurately describe my phenomenology in what's going on. Excellent. So, uh, moving on then, accurately describing your phenomenology. Uh, what, what's, what's going on? What is, what is life like? Can you give us oh, a before and after? That's, that's very it's difficult. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Uh, where to even begin? Okay. Well, maybe we can, we can take our time sort of getting into this, that again, following this theme of increase of the hedonic set point. So it's been about 10 months for me now since, since I had my, my last shift. And okay. So before this last shift, okay. So uh, I mean, one of the hallmark features that I used to describe sort of how my mind is, is it's like decentralized, it's permanent centerless mind. There's no, Singly positioned epistemic agent in the center. There's no, this knower of experience where there used to be that has disappeared and uh, hasn't reappeared. And before this shift, I was kind of, even though I was sort of able to attain states of deep peace and deep equanimity and sort of really deepening my insight into emptiness. Emptiness is another. Uh, jargony term of Buddhism that might not mean what you think it means. You've got to look up what emptiness means. Uh, I still wasn't like, I was like, how does my well-being compare to others? I don't know. I don't know if I'm 
have more well-being than other people's well-being. But now after this shift, it's abundantly obvious my well-being is is ridiculously high um, compared to other people's. And so there's much to get into. One thing is the mood stability is off the charts. So before... I would feel lots of emotions as, as, as everybody does, you know, that if you pay attention, you're always cycling through emotions and it would seem that uh, every kind of thought and sensation would have an emotional coloring to it. And then just depending on my, my energy levels and my blood sugar and how much sleep I had and, and, and temperament and what's happening, I'd be feeling waves of different emotions throughout the day in a very normal normal way and as you meditate a lot you become really really sensitive to these emotions so that even if it's just sort of percolating a little bit it's like very clear to you oh that that's loneliness oh my god i'm so lonely <laughs> something like this now really there isn't this fluxing of emotions it's just stably I'm just good all the time, in a good mood all the time. And I, I didn't know this would be biologically possible. So another thing with the going through the stages of insight, the stages of insight is, uh, yeah, I guess the, the 16 parts of how your attention will uh, fluctuate and alter naturally, just as it is. You, if, you, if you know to look out for them, you can predict these changes in attention. Uh, when you're sitting down to meditate and each stage has, each stage would change your relationship to being. So there's the dark night stages, there's, um, disillusion, fear, misery, uh, disgust, desire for deliverance, reobservation. And each one of those, as you go through them, you have a slightly different relationship to existence. Like again, fear, fearful of existence. And then, desire for deliverance kind of kind of wanting to get over the hump of this moment to get to the next moment because you're looking for the gold on the other side of the hill and um you know in indulging in this moment cherishing this moment now when i sit to meditate i can still go through these cycles and see attention the quality of attention change but it's not coming with this emotional bent to it, where my relationship to existence is is changing, and in fact, I, in, in part, I feel because the mind is decentralized, there's no there's no one single spot that gets the final hearsay on, on calling like, what does this being feel in relationship to existence? There's there's no one spot to speak for every other spot of being. It's, 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 um, I mean, and this, this speaks to the no self quality where it's like you've just dissolved into existence and it, it uproots this, the will to be and the will to not be as a, as a type of hindrance. Um, you know, just if I ask myself, do I want to continue living or do I not want to continue living? And, I, and again, someone who's, who's, very familiar with suicidal thoughts, uh, very familiar with the, the will to not be a part of me that's calling out to not be 
and and also you know enjoying life and a part of me that wants the will to be now if i ask myself that do i want to be or not be there's 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 no one to to answer that question it doesn't make sense it, it falls on deaf ears in a way it's just uh, a, a a signal being dropped into a resonant bowl without uh, like a pole in the middle <laughs> oh yeah yeah i like that yeah. <laughs> that's the, the metaphor that came to mind um let's see so You'll have to excuse me. My thoughts have dropped off. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I know it happens. It happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're kind of talking about this. The, the, I guess the phenomenology of the fourth path and the, the hedonic set point. And, mm, right. Okay. Uh, I wanted to play devil's advocate in here. Okay. Yes. Um, so pretending that uh, I don't believe you for a moment. Um, what, uh, what, what if, in fact, uh, through your uh, attentional development, you are in fact just uh, severely dissociating from your normal human feelings, uh, and uh, that uh, without your conscious awareness of the fact, uh, all of that is still operating beneath the level of your conscious awareness uh, and kind of puppeting your uh, very equanimous, very uh, internally happy uh, mind, and yet all of that is still uh, occurring just outside of your awareness because you've somehow excluded it. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm quite familiar with dissociated states. So, well, so another ability that was gained once I got stream entry was this ability to enter into the witness, which is this kind of meditative move you can pull where you feel like you're, um, yeah, it's like, a dis- you know, engaging a dissociated sp- state where you remove yourself it's like you take one step back from the world and everything is kind of slightly less in focus and you don't feel personally attached to anything it's like i'm just you know the great witness seeing all of this stuff and i'm indifferent to it all all that stuff so i'm quite familiar with uh, dissociated states in that sense and i and i i did have a bout of um uh derealization as well at some point. At some point during I think third third path I actually went through a derealization experience. And normally that is characterized with the world seeing le- seeming less in focus, less rich, less uh tangible, like you can't get a hold of anything and nothing is uh, nothing is substantially real, but in actually a disheartening way in a way that there's actually a a mellow like it's a bummer kind of effect going on and normally i I think dissociated people are not so expressive and this is there's descriptions i could give about my state that would seem to overlap the dissociated state i think where i could say well yeah well everything's like empty everything's an illusion <laughs> you know, it's like no none of it is real none of it is uh, really hard hitting and you know just uh, spend time with me you'll see that i'm pretty happy for a dissociated person and i can still really get in touch with the phenomena and clearly track this stuff 
And, you know, I think also dissociated state, there's still, there still is a sense of self, but it's a sense of self that's pulled back. That's trying to not look directly at the world, but turn its head slightly. This is different. Excellent. So to, to summarize, um, you, you're, because of your prior experience, um, again, you know, sus- pretending again that I'm suspending, dis- uh, suspending mm-hmm. belief, um, that because of your past experience, you have kind of introspective discrimination between dissociated states and the state that you currently enjoy. Mm-hmm. You, you can, you, you know, the difference from memory and, and introspection in both cases. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, I'm sure that, uh, that satisfies me. It might not satisfy other people. Uh, we, yeah. you know, when, when this stuff is studied by science, I'm, I'm sure the differences will show up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can get more into the, the texture of, of space, of, of, of color, um, of, of the sights and sounds, uh, of your external quote unquote, uh, environment and also, uh, perhaps what your relation to, uh, thoughts and images that appear in the mind uh, to give a contrast for most people. Most of the time, the outer world is a kind of solid uh, space that one seems to be positioned within. Um, and one's thoughts, uh, feelings and emotions are a kind of uh, bubbling complex that interact and kind of bounce off of each other uh, that ripple out into uh, actions, good and bad. And it's all quite solid, um, sticky. You seem to be describing the opposite of all of that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you and I had a conversation before about, and I was trying to describe how now the insight into emptiness is so stark that nothing ever has a chance to fully reify. It's like, imagine, I was saying this to you earlier, but I'll say it again for the sake of the podcast. There's kind of some threshold level that needs to be met for something to become a solid sort of concrete entity and be a fixed noun and now whatever arises in the mind whatever phenomena thoughts sound sights whatever have you it's it's it emerges and manifests but it never meets this threshold and there's a seeing of it disappearing the moment it's appearing and so all that is uh all qualia is understood to be hollow models you know, they're, they're, they're all deeply empty no, no matter how much they're uh, manifesting so uh potentially not that i suggest we do this we could we could dial up the intensity of the stimulation uh of your experience um you know uh shins and young uses a kind of gruesome example uh you know uh, someone if someone went medieval on him that's his phrase uh got up got out the blowtorch and the pliers um, That's he a said, Pulp Fiction. In Pulp Fiction, I'm going to go medieval on your ass. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, he said, you know, Shinzen will, will will say, you know, like, he'd have a bad time. Give him a few months, though, to kind of ramp up, and, you know, he'd be okay. <laughs> Does that track? I Okay, I won't claim that level. You know, I I'm still adverse to painful stimuli and still still don't appreciate you know being stabbed or anything like that but i mean i haven't i mean yeah i haven't experienced really really painful stimuli so i'd be really interested to hear of practices where you can uh, endure that stuff more 
but the i mean the at, at this point, psychological suffering is basically non-existent. My, my only bothers in life are like physical discomforts. And, uh, yeah, luckily I don't experience a lot of physical pain, but, um, you know, if it were to, I mean, that's just a good way to test me. You know, so if, if, if well, you want to come around at some point, it's kind of prodding me. <laughs> we can try it out. I mean, age will do that work for us. You know, we, we can check in when you're 60, 70, 80. Hopefully you live that long, you know, uh, conditions permitting. Well, um, part, part of me doesn't, doesn't care as well. You know, this is, this is the thing about the decentralized mind that again, that overcoming that hindrance of the desire to be, the desire to not be. When I sort of contemplate on death, there's a sense of, uh, I mean, one thing I, I'm cautious about is saying things and then you never know how you're going to react when the time comes. So I can, I can talk all this stuff now while I'm in good health. But for now, it seems like, yeah, I'm uh, less and less afraid of death. Yeah. And I, I think that is actually quite significant because I, People don't realize the degree to which their fear of death is prompting them in their decisions and behaviors day to day. For sure. Uh, perhaps a good framing, we can bring in, uh, you know, some, a classical, uh, Buddhist analogy of the, the second arrow, which, with which I'm sure you're familiar. So there's the first arrow, which is the, uh, the, the, the pains and, and aches that you're subject to just by virtue of having been born, uh, a mammalian organism. You're going to have pain. You're going to have hunger. You might not sleep that well all the time. Uh, and eventually you're going to get old, sick and, and, and perish. Uh, that's unavoidable. It's, we're, we're stuck with it. We're embodied beings. Entropy does its thing. Uh, and, uh, we're eventually going to be shuffled off this mortal coil, whether we like it or not, uh, with a heaping of pain along the way. However, uh, what we don't realize, or, uh, most of us anyway, uh, you, you maybe being one of the exceptions, uh, is that the majority, um, in fact, almost all of the suffering, uh, in existence in our conscious experience comes from this kind of, uh, construction and layering on top of that first let, uh, arrow. The, the metaphor is, you know, there's, there's an arrow wound and then you stick another arrow in there. Like the pain is 10, a hundred times worse. Whereas the first, the first arrow, that's eh, not that bad. Yeah. 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 It, it blew my mind as well. The reduction in suffering that this, that this uh, that has, has occurred. Yeah. The ma- vast majority of our suffering is psychological suffering. All right. Um, so, <laughs> All right. I mean, we could, we could, we could, we could, we could, we could end there, but I, we have some time. So let's, let's try to get a little more detailed about the, the, the bear, um, as bare as we can get with the construction of language, the bear phenomenology of your sensory experience. Um, let's, let's talk about real basics. Uh, what, what, if anything has changed in your perception of space, physical extension? The, hmm. Well, okay, the, the boundarylessness construction of the mind now that is, uh, ever evident. So right before fourth path, it felt like I was in this bubble of consciousness and that bubble included everything that was, uh, in, in, in sight. Everything that could be experienced was encapsulated in this bubble. It was kind of like this cage of the mind. And now, that one thing I talk about is actually those that construction of the sense of the the boundaries of mind is a modal perception, 
meaning you don't directly perceive it, but they're heavily inferred by the mind that there must be an edge because there's an edge to visual stimuli, yet uh, this must mean the edge of the mind. But there's an understanding that whatever is projected in the mind is not is not the objective uh, formulation of this thing. It's, it's if you are experiencing space, that space is a model and the, the model is empty as well. And so there's, um, with, with this, once you reach a, reach a certain threshold level of insight into emptiness, you can never fully buy into the model. That's how it is. So it's projected, but you're not fully bought in. And uh, you can see space uh, appear and disappear, you know, kind of experiences where there's, there's no space, um, say, seventh jhana. And then, yeah, there's that. There's like, what is big or small? And in this space, there is no center. So there's no sense that everything is being orchestrated around one point or one knower. So all the phenomena... Uh, appears where it appears and it is known in its place where it appears and is not referencing back to some homunculus. Great. Um, so to, again, just kind of put it into my own words, um, maybe it'll help some other people understand kind of what you're talking about. Uh, there's still enough of a perception of resistance uh, or a fluctuation of space uh, when you look out that, you know, ah, there's a relatively solid object over there. I'm not going to go walk into it. There's going to be, if I bump up against it, there's going to be resistance. However, it's not uh, bought into. Um, and that you can see in real time um, kind of the construction of the space of your experience uh, that where before there were solid boundaries, instead there's just uh, the movement of, of space that temporarily gives the impression I'm in a room, this is a solid floor, uh, my body is solid, etc. Is that... Yes, yes. And, and there's this sense of, this is like you finally get the, you know, freedom from the mind, like you're not encaged in a space. And yeah, they go, obviously the, the system can still be modeling the, the organism so that the organism could orientate in the environment and avoid lampposts, all those kind of things. But none of it's taken to be personal. And maybe we could say, I want to get to time, but maybe we, we could say a little bit uh, more about, uh, I think a very important element of, of the experience, which you referenced, um, that, uh, phenomena, um, objects of experience, objects, um, are known where they are. Uh, the awareness of the objects is not different from the appearance of the objects themselves. Maybe you could say a bit more. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that was, fundamental to this realization that awareness or consciousness cannot be separated from the the thing being known, the the qualia. It really, they are indistinguishable. It's not possible to separate them. And before in my path, there was, I mean, maybe someone could say that to me and I could, I could relate to that, but the, the mind was still, Construing them as somehow slightly separate, like there was still a slight division between the two. Maybe awareness is is over the top of the thing being perceived, or you know, just around it, or or is like somehow a separate molecule that is in it. And, it, and if you're still conceiving of it like that, then there's this distinction. You got to realize, no, 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 there can't be any distinction at all. 
you, you couldn't have one without the other. I'm reminded of uh, of Dogen. The the the. This is going to be a bad paraphrase, uh, but the the study of, of of Buddhism is the study of the self. To study the self is to forget the self. Um, to forget the self uh, is to be actualized by the myriad things of the world. So in this in this case, being actualized of the things of the world is um, exactly what you're saying. There there isn't some independent uh, observer of things happening. There's yeah. there's just yeah. things happening. Uh, yeah, to 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 look at something and and be fully looking at it and not having this slight time delay of of watcher perceiving object reference back to watcher you know this this movement of information which slows the process down and interferes it's like this yeah in the seeing there's just the scene it's immediately grasped immediately apprehended yeah there's a there's a slight a slight lag a slight disjunction, which is actually quite subtly painful uh, once you catch on to it. <laughs> and having mm. that, having that gone. Oof. Well, okay, then we can move into time. Do you want to go into time now, or do you want I think to... I think we're good. Let's let's go into time. Let's move through time into the conversational time. Into the timeless now. <laughs> or not, not the now. So not the now. Surprise. Yes, yes, because. Um, it's one thing, you know, Eckhart Tolle always talks about is the now. It's always the now. And then, which, which is a really good thing to recognize, but is your mind subtly construing the now as an object, as a thing, as a place? And what I found is that there, there is, everything is so empty that there isn't even a now. There isn't even enough time for something to fully manifest and, in, and exist in even one moment. It can't because the, the, everything is appearing and disappearing. It's hard to talk about it without time, but so incredibly simultaneous, simul, in fact, simultaneously that a now cannot even take hold, cannot consolidate itself. And Perhaps this is recognized again through the decentralized mind. Well, what, what makes up the mind? The, the present moment is actually sort of a, a construing of, a, okay, multiple data points that are, okay, uh, outside of direct experience, we presume are, um, inputs that are taken in over across a series of time and then the brain forms a picture of the now, but also because we're trying to preemptively interact with the future to, to predict what is coming next, your now is actually a subtle prediction of the future as well. The past meets the future. And with this decentralized mind, again, there's no single entity in the center who gets to decide what is the now. Like, the, again, like what is the mind calls a blank. It can't conceive of, oh, that was the now. Whereas mm-hmm. before, okay, third path, there was a, still a, a uh, the epistemic agent who could who could be like, okay, now, 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 and now there's no one to uh, make call that shot, and and definitely not speak for the rest of the system. And and what I found was. Before 
I would try to be mindful. And the way I'd think about being mindful was I would slow down my behavior. And I felt like I was trying to pay more attention to the now, what is happening now, get more into the now. At fourth path, one thing is I lost the ability to be mindful. Meaning that mindful could be understood in many ways. But what I mean is there's no possibility to not be present. It's so understood that, you know, even thoughts about the, the future are arising here. Um, I, it makes no difference for me to slow down my behavior and pay attention. I mean, yeah, I can pay attention to things in more detail, but there's no sense that by doing that, I'm becoming more conscious, mm-hmm. you know, whereas before there was that kind of sense like, okay, now I'm being really mindful and more conscious. Now there's, there's no distinction. There. Excellent. Um, so, uh, one way you could say it is that by, uh, closing the gap spatially between observer and observed, uh, and, uh, between past and, and future, uh, actually the, what, you know, what here and that, and now, uh, they vanish. Um, and this is borne out in current cognitive science and neuroscience. The present, um, is, is specious, the specious present. Uh, it doesn't actually exist. It's a multifaceted, um, construction that is sustained by basically introspective, uh, fuzziness. Uh, and when you ramp up the clarity enough, it's, there's just things happening simultaneously all at once, but not in one bound moment of time. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, does that describe your experience? Yeah. I like, I liked how you described that. And it, it's yeah really interesting to see how modern cognitive science seems to be really aligned with uh, meditative perception. There's a, I'm, I'm, I'm aware as well of the, the tendency among uh, Buddhists, I think, I, I would identify as one is, you know, you've done mostly Buddhist meditation. Would you consider yourself a Buddhist? Not really. Again, I mean, I'm very influenced by Buddhism for sure, but I'm not beholden to it. I also recognize I'm pretty ignorant about Buddhism. So, uh, but I'm, I'm super influenced by Buddhism. There's, there's kind of a, a privileging in a lot of modern religious science dialogue of, of Buddhism as kind of uh, a scientific religion. Um, in ways that, you know, when you inspect closely the tradition, the claims that are made, uh, and current cognitive science, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a modernist confabulation. Uh, the philosopher Evan Thompson does a really good job of kind of unpacking, uh, it's like a very specific, uh, constructed version of, of Buddhism really within the last two centuries that has kind of been custom built to fit with modern science. So of course it yes. works. Of course it, yes. it, it fits together nicely. Um, yeah. Although they had wacky metaphysical beliefs where like the whole world was sitting on water or, you know, there was like just water mm-hmm. under the ground forever. And oh, sure. Yeah. You, effort, yeah. If you actually look at traditional Buddhist belief uh, and, and, and dogma orthodoxy, uh, you will find just as much <laughs> that is incompatible with modern science as, as any mm-hmm. other uh, religion. It's just the version of Buddhism, which has kind of been exported and adopted by Western converts like myself, uh, has kind of been cu- custom made to fit our biases and prejudices, which, uh, it's, if you don't know that you, you know, read, read Evan Thompson's why I'm not a Buddhist or, uh, David McMahon's, uh, the making of Buddhist modernism and, uh, the wool will be cleared from your eyes. I felt I should stick that in there. Um, 
Mm. Yeah, I remember Evan Thompson. I, I remember I listened to a podcast by him, I think, uh, Michael Taft's podcast, and then I wrote him an email, I think, just saying, like, oh, it's really, really inspired because he's he's a meditator, but he's also a philosopher, and I was like, that's that's what I like. <laughs> so, uh-huh. yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, not that I believe in these sorts of things, but, you know, manifesting with intention. Hey, I'm hoping I can get Evan on, on here at some point. <laughs> Maybe I can get oh, Evan and Evan oh, and you in dialogue. That would be fun. Oh my! Um, <laughs> he he would he would really uh, put put you to the fire. He he'd be he'd be incisive, and I think you could handle it. It'd be fun. Cool. cool. Um, I mean, we covered space, we covered time, we covered uh, identity or the lack thereof, and the like non fixation of of space and time. Um, let's see. Um, what else is there? What else is, what else is there? Consciousness? Although consciousness, there, you know, if, if you ask, you know, what is consciousness? It's like, well, I don't, this, this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's so, a sense, so the, you know. The, the, the ability to see all these things defabricate, see space defabricate, time defabricate, and, and then eventually consciousness shut off as well. Yeah. Um, if, hmm. I mean, to, I mean, revolutionizes your understanding of reality. For maybe sure. Just witness these things happen. Let's, uh, maybe we, we have, we have again a little bit more time. Maybe we could talk about metaphysics, uh, what your relationship is to, uh, your cognitive relationship. Cause I know your perceptual relationship to mm-hmm. space, time and identity is, uh, quite, uh, quite abnormal, though normative from a Buddhist perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your relationship, if any, your cognitive, uh, verbal, mm-hmm. uh, relationship to, uh, to the notion of, of, of consciousness of, of space, uh, and, and of time. We, we covered the perceptual version, you know, what, uh, yeah. or do you just not speculate? No, I'm, I'm inquisitive and, and interested in nature of reality and what is going on. What can we infer about reality beyond direct experience? What is out there? What is happening? Uh, I'm, you know, strikingly, I'm probably quite physicalist. I do imagine there is a brain um, construing these things. There is a an organism, a biological entity that's taking an input from the world. And evolution has, you know, shaped consciousness. And the things we perceive are probably uh, because they were um, beneficial for our survival. And it makes me wonder, you know, is space and time, I have a kind of thought that, you know, in, um, what's, what's it called? What's it called? The study of symbols and such where you can, I'm blanking on the name of the, the, the domain, the topic. You can have symbols that look directly like what they are trying to depict. There's a difference between sort of, Icon symbols. I, there's an itch somewhere in my cognitive space that is like, I know, eh, maybe it'll come up, but I know what you're talking okay, about. Yeah. So, so, okay. So a traffic light, red means stop, green means go. But red has nothing to do with stopping and green has nothing to do with going. If you look directly at in the color red, like we've created an association there. Um, where there's smoke, there's fire. You see smoke, you reckon there's fire. And But then you could actually draw a, a symbol of a flame that looks like fire, and you associate, okay, this picture with 
or flames with fire. Our perception of space and time, are they actually tracking something that is kind of spacey and timey beyond direct experience? Or are they a, like, a, a version construed in the mind to give the, the simplified understanding of something beyond itself, something much more sophisticated or something that's totally different. And it's like, to how much of a correlation is there between our experience of space and time and what it is supposed to be representing beyond experience? And it could, they could be highly similar or not similar at all. And I sort of wonder actually, perhaps they're not very similar at all, though actually what greater reality is like time, you know, our linear perception of time, it's not like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from what little, and it's very little, I know of, of quantum mechanics and state of the art physics. You know, I read the pop science articles. My goodness, uh, <laughs> our perception of space and time is nothing at all like, uh, what is, uh, happening according to our, our best models of, mm-hmm. of physical reality and, uh, mm-hmm. best minds in the world disagree, uh, hotly about, uh, foundations of, of mm-hmm. space and time. Is it emergent? Uh, is it just, you know, space time, you know, is, is one kind of unified field equation, um, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Uh, so they're not actually different. They're, uh, and this can be observed as well in, uh, in meditative experience that the experience of space, the experience of time, they colorize. Well, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they seem to be, yeah, emergent in, in experience. And again, but how much, how much of our experience is tracking with greater reality? So what, I mean, another thought with the self, like with the self models, the self models are actually quite latent in experience where you see the sense of, of a, um, personal identity with history and, and, and thoughts and, and, and modeling of the, the body schema and where you are in position in relation to, you know, someone else and, and tracking how this organism's uh, behavior is and personality type is and trying to model the other person in front of you and seeing those constructions actually appear quite late. Once you get your uh, noticings per second quite fast, you see like, actually these are pretty delayed functions and there's like lots of things to recognize before that even comes online. And then I, and you know, there's this thought I have about, okay, how are you construing God? If you think God, has a personal identity. And if he, if God is conscious, you know, the, 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 the conscious cosmos and he is a personal identity, well, is that personal identity actually that delayed of a function like it is for humans? And it's like, well, then why would you call something so delayed the ultimate God and there's things more, things more foundational, uh, before it. Um, and when it, Okay, when it comes to consciousness, again, you have to see in your own mind, are you construing consciousness as a, as a kind of special substrate, as a special substance or film? How thick is consciousness perceived to you as it, as, as like it is actually a thing existing? I would argue even consciousness is empty. And in that sense, it doesn't really exist. I'd imagine it's maybe perhaps the biggest trick ever played. We're convinced we're conscious. And it's like, how do you know you're conscious? Well, oh, I just, I just am. It's as if you, you can't not be fooled. 
by this thing. But then again, the, it speaks to why can't we say anything about it? Um, you know, I think when it comes to perceiving colors, you say, okay, this is, this is kind of an orangey red notebook. And it's like, how do you know it's orangey red? Well, I just see it, but I can't describe it to a blind person. There's nothing I can say about this color. I'm, I'm yet, I'm convinced I'm seeing it. And there's nothing I can say about consciousness, yet I'm convinced I'm conscious. I think is perhaps the biggest trick. <laughs> this, this, this goes straight to the heart of, uh, this goes straight to the heart of, you know, some of the most, uh, abstruse, uh, and enjoyable, if you like that kind of thing, Buddhist philosophy, where in fact, anything and everything, uh, that you could possibly, uh, term with a, with a noun, um, or a verb for that matter is, uh, upon final analysis, uh, empty or unfindable. That's a good word. Uh, it speaks mm, to yeah. exactly what you're saying. Um, the, uh, the atoms of experience, uh, you, you, you really discern both with inference and with yogic, you know, meditative perception, uh, consciousness, uh, space, time, uh, you know, medium sized dry goods. <laughs> um, if you, if you really look, my, my, there's nothing, there's, there's no thing there. Mm-hmm. There's appearance, mm-hmm. uh, but you can't find, uh, either through inference well, or perception, you can't find any substance. But perhaps this is something interesting to talk about as well. It's something I'm, I'm trying to detail that there's a, a super precision, super precision perception that is attained at fourth path where you're seeing simultaneous, uh, expansion and contraction, simultaneous form and emptiness and again again with the decentralized mind it's like you there's such fast information processing that you like it's like you almost see the trick that you you see that what this is it's not it's neither it's not what we thought it is it's there's clearly something there's clearly something but it's not a thing like a noun and yet it all seems to be empty. And yet it's not like there's nothing. It's some special something that defies categorical comprehension. Uh, the Buddha like, called uh, it. Uh, sorry. Go on. Yeah. No, no, you go. The, the Buddha called it uh, uh, Yathabhuta or uh, Tathata, suchness um, or things as they are. That's how Yathabhuta is sometimes translated. And I'm probably getting the pronunciation wrong. Uh, but, you know, when, when asked about the, the final reality of things, uh, you know, the Buddha or, you know, in later texts, the bodhisattvas, they'd either just, you know, remain silent, <laughs> hold up a finger, then, you know, that's kind of a Zen thing or a flower or, you know, whack with a stick uh, or, you know, you, you end up with something that's not very satisfying to the conceptual mind because the conceptual mind is trying to fabricate uh, a picture, uh, a, a, a syntactical uh, sentence to, to grasp at the objects, to thingify uh, mm. to, to reify mm. experience. But when you, when you look closely through inference or, or in fact, direct perception, you can't, you can't say anything about it. I mean, you, you can say things about it, but you're saying things about what aren't things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is yeah. very unsatisfying until, until it isn't. <laughs> well, well, until it isn't. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, there's this, um, sense that it seems totally sensical. It seems, it seems like it makes the most sense actually, that it's, it's neither something nor nothing. And, 
uh, it's not it's not unsatisfying at all. I won't say satisfying because nothing is ultimately uh, satisfactory. <laughs> you should know that's the three characteristics, but uh, it's not unsatisfying. Uh, the um, I, I'm I'm forgetting the name of the sutta, but uh, mm. it, oh, I think it, your it begins... camera has uh, oh, oh it's defocused. defocused. There we go. Eh? It's going into the witness. <laughs> oh, and we're back. Um, that was a cessation right there. Um, mm-hmm. what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, there's a there's a sutta um in which uh someone asks uh the Buddha some question. I'll put, I'll put this as a reference. I'll be able to find it after the episode. I'll put it, I'll put it down there. But the Buddha replies to the question, the world relies uh, on a distinction, um, that between existence and, and, and non-existence. Uh, and then he goes on to spell out in great detail why this is mistaken. Uh, and that the reality of things, uh, it just, the, it doesn't, the, it doesn't the, apply. The Diamond Sutra? Mm-mm, no, this is in the Pali Canon, although the Diamond Sutra is also just a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, I don't know. This is, this has been great fun. Um, I think, I think perhaps if you have some kind of final, final benediction, encouragement, um, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> encouragement really encourage people to meditate <laughs> to, to that there is a, a path and progress to make and it's so, so worth it. The, the reduction in suffering is outstanding. It's, you know, to put it one way, people always talk about, oh, they've got this sort of like, the, the God-shaped hole in them. Or, you know, they're trying to fill that hole inside of them. And people look for, you know, money, sex, and drugs, or whatever. And then there's a thought that, oh, those that's not how you should fill the hole. You should fill the hole with um, something healthy. You know sports and and relationships or healthy relationships at least and then no no and then there's another thought that no no but even none of those things would you have to fill the hole with jesus or someone and for me getting fourth path is like there's no hole that 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 hole it's not that it was filled by god or or anything it's like you recognize there is no hole there is no spoon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And um, I'll put it in the, uh, the show description. Um, but where, where can people find you, Roger, if they want to get in contact? Oh, yeah. Um, so I've got a, a meditative group called, we've got a website called meditative.dev. And we run a group there. But if people want to contact me, Personally, I've got a Facebook page. You can send me a message there. And uh, yeah, I like to, like to hear from people. All right. Thanks so much for, for coming on. And, uh, we'll probably do this again sometime. Something, something will come up. Cool. Thank you, Winston. All right. Great fun. <laughs>